Hey, what's going on? I hope you are well as always. Uh, so, a pretty fascinating episode for you this week with the CEO and founder of none other than Second Life, Philip Rosedale. Now, for most of us, Second Life is the original metaverse, a project that was started over 20 years ago and is still hugely successful today. Philip is a real OG, someone who's been pioneering the concept of online virtual worlds probably longer than anyone else. As you might have guessed, he has a lot of great things to say. In this episode, we go back to basics about what virtual worlds need to achieve, how he sees the current landscape, and his advice for how to place yourself for the coming years as we move towards this future. A real pleasure to have Philip on, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this one, so let's get into it. Philip, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for doing this. Great to be here. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, you're an amazing guest for this conversation conversation because uh, you have obviously been here for uh since since day one really i can't really imagine what the last sort of 18 months has been like for you because you've been pioneering these ideas for for kind of close to 20 years what big question to start but what's your sort of assessment been of metaverse mania over the last kind of 18 months well you know back when second life got started um the world got equally interested in the question, you know, of whether we were going to leave our bodies some of the time and instead, you know, be together in some sort of alternate reality as avatars, you know, that happened with Second Life, we, we became um, the interest and the, the hype and the media around virtual worlds at that time was pretty comparable to the conversation that's gone on over the last couple of years now, you know, with uh, most notably, I guess, with Facebook changing their name, but more broadly, you know, all the technology work that's being done in the space. So I've seen it before. It doesn't surprise me, you know, the idea that we might have another place that is important to us where we spend our collective time is, of course, an electrifying proposition, I think, for most people. And so it's not surprising that it's exciting, but of course, I've also seen all the the problems, you know, with getting there and, you know, can, yeah, in the last couple of years, I've been trying to apply them to Facebook, you know, as much as, as, as they apply to anyone else and sort of thinking about that. Yeah, we'll get into uh, all of these questions and your kind of view on what people are doing right, what people are doing wrong, and and uh, what you've got so right at Second Life as well, which is going to be interesting for sure. Uh, lots of people will obviously uh, know or certainly have heard of Second Life, um, really probably the original metaverse, right? It's, uh, I think, almost 20 years old. For anyone who maybe is less experienced with it, maybe you could just uh, give us a little bit of the sort of journey. I know that's going to be hard to do in, uh, in a few minutes, uh, but just set the scene for people of, of kind of where it started and where it's come to now in the context of, of everything else going on. Sure. Well, right. I started working on it more than 20 years ago. I can't believe it, but it was 1999. And uh, the technology both of the internet and of personal computers had just barely, I think, gotten good enough to make it possible to try doing something like Second Life. And, uh, right, to set up the what is Second Life, for those who haven't seen it, uh, it, it is a, a huge open world sort of a sandbox wherein we can all uh, build things totally live, you know, build from scratch anything we want. Um, and of course, do that in the presence of other people um, in, a, in a way that is quite different from, say, uh, video games. 
Second Life didn't start out and doesn't have any low-level rules, you know, to sort of gamify the experience. So it was just a big, empty, tropical island, basically, at the start. And then everybody that joined could start building whatever they wanted. And then in addition to that, we have an economy, uh, an economic system that makes it very, very easy to buy and sell things from each other, uh, which I suppose is somewhat reminiscent more recently of uh, some of the things that have gone on in crypto. Although, you know, looking at sort of crypto compared to the economic system that we built in Second Life is really interesting because the two of them are quite uh, quite different and have had quite different outcomes. Mm, cool. Okay. We'll definitely explore that uh, a little bit later as well because I'm really interested uh, in how in-game economies work and whether they need to be kind of linked to a wider economy that's obviously a big question but there's some just interesting stuff there before we do that um maybe you could tell us any of your sort of favorite stories from users in second life some of the things that have been created there's so many kind of interesting communities that have naturally developed in this sort of social experiment really over the last 20 years maybe you could just sort of tell people a, a little bit about uh you know what the users have created well there's as you can imagine, you know, part of the appeal of Second Life is that it's a really broad range. And so by picking anything, I'm kind of, you know, shining a spotlight in a way that doesn't statistically match the world, if you will. But um, people have made art and different types of living artworks that I think are extraordinary. You know, there's a, uh, there's an artist who's been written about a lot. His name is AM Radio in, in Second Life. That's his name. And he built these very moody, uh, large scale scenes that themselves were works of art that you go sort of wander around in and, you know, find your best favorite vantage point. But, you know, you can imagine he built, for example, a sort of a rusty machines in an abandoned, you know, cornfield with a sort of a, you know, the, uh, the, the, the locomotive of a train at, at a kind of a listed, you know, angle into the ground. And, you know, you, you, could wander, you could go to this guy's place in Second Life and just stand in this field and know that you are standing in basically a painting, you know, that he had made for you. And so I think that's an example of, of what people can do. And, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't do something like that without the, like the features that I mentioned earlier of being able to have all these people building stuff together so that he, for example, could like go get props for his environment, you know, from somebody else and then put them there, you know, so this, this ability to mash together, um, anything that people were able to create in this three-dimensional world is a uh, key to the magic of it. But I mean, other experiences range from, you know, crazy live entertainment experiences with, you know, you know, dancers in mocap suits, you know, on stage with people watching, you know, there, there's any, uh, almost anything you can imagine that could be built in a virtual world probably has been tried somewhere in second life you know it's the size of los angeles so it's a lot of uh you know if, if you started wandering around trying to see it all uh you're never going to you know not not in one lifetime yeah yeah it's very cool for sure now i think with the whole sort of space when you look at it broadly now so much has happened over the last few months obviously but we have this kind of array of different worlds and different offerings some which are working really well if you are counting success by you know, number of users, the stats around Roblox and Fortnite are, are you know, pretty incredible. You've then obviously got, uh, you know, uh, Meta Horizons and, and their offering, Horizon Worlds, and uh, plenty of 
of other ones that are maybe uh you know on the more decentralized side of stuff and sandbox and and um, other side coming in and all these other ones when you sort of look at the kind of landscape including second life in that maybe you can speak to sort of the fundamentals of what you think makes a social world work and consistently kind of attract people back because you've been doing that the longest so what's your kind of uh golden tips or, or what are some of the things that you've learned that are crucial do you think well i think you put it well by not by jumping right to kind of a social world right what i think it's important to note that there are many say game experiences that we have as you know a wide range of different people with a wide range of interests that are solo experiences, you know, that are fundamentally single player experiences. In fact, even Minecraft, which I think has been one of the most important things that has happened kind of post second life that is really important and interesting to look at like what it does and why it's compelling. But like most of the usage of Minecraft, which I hear sometimes people say, you know, well, there's a couple hundred million people playing Minecraft, but most of that play is single player actually, right? The appeal of Minecraft is, more, you know, survival mode building in this wonderful, simplistic way, you know, but alone. Um, social virtual worlds represent this different design problem. And that's where Second Life lives. And that's where things like VR chat, which I would cite as a modern example of a very important and interesting virtual world as well. But virtual worlds that have people in them inevitably come down to for their success, whether and how they enable people to communicate you know, and how authentic that communication is in the environment and whether people are comfortable with it. So for example, almost like by the numbers, but by counting people, 99.9% of the usage of social virtual worlds is happening uh, with the people using them being between say eight years old and 14 years old. So the great majority of usage of what we kind of call the metaverse today is young people playing together. And so what that tells us is something really interesting, which is it's easier to make a social uh, fabric, to make an experience of meeting somebody new, for example, it's easier to make that work when the people using it are quite young, our kids. It's much harder, as is the case with Second Life, to make that work when the people using it are grownups. And so that is one distinction I would make. And I think that the trick is what you are able to do to make people feel comfortable uh, communicating with each other and particularly communicating with strangers as avatars and, and making adults comfortable doing that is quite difficult. And that's what we've seen in the whole industry, in my opinion, uh, importantly in the last few years. And COVID has been an especially revelatory though negative uh, input for that. Yeah, it's well said that the a the demographic kind of age thing is so interesting because there's this group of uh, you know native younger people who are growing up through these worlds. So it is going to age up in time, like a lot of the social platforms do, like TikTok and, and YouTube and everything else. Generally, starts with that younger audience who are more malleable and less maybe set in their habits, and then it kind of expands to everybody else as they grow and get older. Um, yeah, which is an interesting point for sure. Do you think when we talk about meta, that's part of their problem? There's obviously been lots of press around them not having many users in their world, despite the amount of money that they've spent. Um, it'd be interesting to hear whether you think they've, they're doing something 
obviously wrong or whether it's partly the hardware that it's been VR only for a long time or what would be your kind of review of of why they haven't been able to attract people yet at least I think the problems with attracting people are a little different that the 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 outcome ends up being about the same in terms of success but the problems are different depending on whether you're doing avatars uh, on a screen or on a phone or doing uh everybody wearing VR headsets. You you run into a mishmash of different pros and cons on both both of those cases and they're interesting and you know maybe interesting to dig into. Um, Facebook has faced a lot of challenge unsurprising to me but you know it's what they're in the middle of because they've been pushing on, you know, or at least what we've seen a lot from them is that they've been pushing on these VR headsets and making them work better. Um, VR headsets have the problem that they fundamentally make people feel unsafe when they're wearing them because physiologically, you know, you're if you blindfold a person or most any other mammal uh, in an environment where there are other living things, they generally become uncomfortable, right? Because they're unable to see, you know, what's going on around them and they're concerned that it might be something they don't like. So we all feel uncomfortable wearing VR headsets that are effectively blindfolds. But the thing that's most daunting and different, by the way, than screens and something like Second Life is that VR headsets make different kinds of people feel much even less comfortable than others. You know, so if you don't feel safe in the real world, you are very unlikely to fancy wearing a blindfold as well, right? And so unfortunately, what this means is that um, the people that are, you know, statistically, the people that are willing to wear VR headsets trend to be very homogenous in their demographics. And so that also is a, a, a huge problem, a fatal problem with getting to open spaces and, you know, typical social environments. You know, if you go into a a, uh, a bar in Second Life, which, you know, there are many, many, many of, you know, it's the size of LA, like I said, you will find a very, and you, and you, you know, freeze frame it and you, you know, with permission, you know, ask, ask of all the people that are in that bar as avatars, you'll find um, a very wide range of ages. You'll find a very uniform uh, gender distribution. You will find people from many different languages and from all over the world, uh, you know, distributed as uniformly as they are on the internet or on Wikipedia. So that kind of openness and inclusiveness with respect to different types of people is essential to creating any kind of a social entertaining experience because, you know, we, we do enter, we do social things to find other people. And we have a pretty strict expectation around the uniformity of those people, you know, and other, otherwise it's not a very interesting environment. So different problems with VR headsets and screen uh, technology, but they do all come around to whether you can make people comfortable enough to be willing to kind of socially jump into the, the water. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a, very interesting. It's not a point I'd really thought about before. I know Meta, I think, are launching their it, in browser as well, so maybe that will change for them. But yeah, it's that's... Um... An interesting point let's come back to sort of the economy side of stuff and the sort of motivations of some of these worlds because obviously for them to continue to exist um if they're going to have active developments a lot of that will come from the user side but but something needs to to sustain it um financially as as well there's subscription models for second life as i understand it 
other platforms are uh, you know make a lot of their money from in-game sales from in-game economies um there's a whole range of different ways to sort of uh, to run your world maybe you could talk about where you sit and what you think is is the most kind of sustainable way and interesting way to to run a world yeah well again from the beginning the thing that was a little different about second life than anything really that had come before was that i recognized we we knew that people were going to make stuff and that was going to be the the marvel of it was that you know it was going to be full of stuff that everybody made and we had no idea what that stuff would be but we knew that some of the time people would want to sell these virtual goods and services to other people and so we weren't trying to build an economy that was like a get rich quick scheme like a lot of the crypto stuff we were trying to actually do the opposite which was to build something where the currency the 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 money that you would use to exchange things in the economy was as unimportant as possible in the equation it was it was just a facilitation of trade not a token or you know some unique uh you know, golden ticket that you, that you'd crave to own. Um, so the, we wanted the economy, the, for example, the exchange rate of the Linden dollar, which is the, the, the unit of currency in, in second life to be, uh, stable. We wanted it to remain fairly stable, uh, despite being essentially a, another country's currency, if you will, you know, so we had to take on how we set that system up, but going back to what you said, maybe to, you know, take it at a higher altitude first, enabling people to trade with each other. Yeah, that's absolutely what's critical, you know, I guess at a really high level to the whole internet as an ecosystem, but more specifically, you know, in social worlds, yeah, you have to make that work well. Now there's a great opportunity to build businesses around that because yeah, you can certainly charge some fees on that. I would, you know, uh, that's, that's, what happens with Second Life as well. Second, Second Life's overall economy, it's GDP kind of of that LA sized city is about like $700 million a year. Uh, and that's, there's about a million people, it, it, you know, again, it's hard, you know, given level of activity to, you know, draw the right circle, but it, it's reasonable to say that Second Life is a place populated by like a million people and they're generating about $700 million a year in transactions between themselves. So that's how big the economy is. And then the company takes only a small fraction of that. And I think that if we took a larger fraction of it as some other companies or, you know, tech giants, you know, do in some of these things, I don't think it would survive. Like, I don't think Second Life would have survived as the rich and vital place where people are making things uh, without the company having uh, a pretty low take of that total economic participation. Yeah, yeah, well said for sure. It's it's so interesting thinking about uh, the various different models because especially for Second Life as well, which is very community driven and focused and and kind of pushing that community side first. It, the, the ethos of Web3 and of the crypto side of stuff, which we talk about a lot, is very much also aligned with that in the sense that you're giving users ownership, true ownership, things that um, you know they own. But then what seems clear is that it's then attached to the wider financial markets. And uh, if you've got in-game tokens, for example, in the sandbox world, which is sand, and suddenly the wider economy turns for reasons that are unrelated to the game economy, you suddenly have this, uh, you know, um, trends down, which affects the world. So yeah, what do you, where do you sit with kind of the, that uh, side of Web3 um, and 
integrating crypto and that kind of thing because it, it feels like it should be aligned but it's there's problems still well there's so much to unpack there from what you just said but let's just pick one thing which is um you cannot and this is what web3 attempts to do you cannot ever and this is well understood and widely tested by economists for example um and others you can't have a token that is simultaneously both a speculative asset that may go up or down, as you said, depending on the whim of a larger market and, you know, therefore make your fortune or break it, right? You can never, no, nobody has ever historically online or otherwise, nobody's ever been able to combine a speculative asset that may become this treasure that goes up and to the right over time with a unit of trade. There's a frequent kind of anthropological misunderstanding that we sort of merrily used uh, pieces of gold to trade things with each other in distant history. That 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 is a uh, that is not true. <laughs> there is a different story about how money actually works and how we use it as humans. Um, and so, one of the problems with Web three is you can't use a token for trade. You can either you can't use a scarce token for trade. If you have a scarce token, that's a commodity like. Uh, in some sense, crypto should have not been called cryptocurrency. It should have been called like a crypto asset or crypto commodity or something like that, because that's really a more accurate idea that crypto recreated the uh, not very useful, actually, idea of a scarce like mineral, like gold, right? And 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 invited everybody to trade in that. But it you can't you don't trade in a token which is also going up in value because of course you're an idiot. You bought a television, and your friends are all going to laugh at you next month when your the TV you bought is worth ten times what it was before, but you blew it by you know exchanging the coins for it. Um, you know, it's a famous story. I think of the Bitcoin pizza, right? Is the historic reference there? Nobody wants to be the Bitcoin pizza guy, right? So. Nobody uses cryptocurrencies for trade. So we had, you can only have one or the other. So that's the one thing I would say there that, that really does, to your point, you, you, you can't have a appreciating asset that's tied to some distant commodity market or something affecting the price of the thing that you use to sell shoes to other people in a virtual world. So that, that's one of, the, one of the problems with doing things in the completely uh, crypto asset based way that we see with some web three projects it's gonna be really interesting to see what uh, how that all plays out because the sort of ethos is right but yeah it's those points are well said and there's an amazing book broken money by lynn olden i don't know if you've come across that book broken money i actually haven't i've read gosh thank you i'm gonna look that one up no it's, it's really good it's uh, uh she goes back through all the history of money from uh how it all started from barter trade through to precious metals and everything else and then through the whole financial system and how it works and all the settlement layers and then onto the future of money it's, it's really it's a historical like account of money really but it's um that's great yeah it's fascinating and it's it's uh and she also talks about runescape and how uh gold was intended to be the currency but then uh, it didn't become the currency other things did because of various reasons it's really really fascinating these virtual worlds are simulations of starting a new kind of society and what, and what people uh tend to go towards yes yeah, it's, uh, it's good yeah the other thing i wanted to talk about was uh algorithms obviously there's the big ai conversation at the moment that's impossible to ignore but maybe you could talk a little bit about Second Life being a sort of rare example of a platform that uh, isn't generally curated using algorithms in the same way that many social media platforms are, which is uh, just interesting. So that's quite unique. I feel like we're already trending to a sort of 
style of content that's uh, that's becoming samey because of uh, AI, you know, generative AI, at least in the moment we're in. So what's your thoughts there? And maybe that becomes more valuable with everything that's happening. Well, the first thing about Second Life, fortunately, was that we weren't able to avoid or, you know, engineer, I guess, a different solution to space. Um, Second Life is a, just like the real world, it is a largely a sort of two-dimensional surface, if you will, just, just like we all think about the surface of Earth. We're not, you know, under or above it very much. We're usually just on it. Um, Second Life is just like the real world, a bunch of plots of land that lie adjacent to each other. And, you know, you can walk down a street in Second Life with different people, uh, you know, building on the, you know, bits of land in every direction from you. So what I say that because what that means is the discovery process and the filtering process and the, and the, the finding process, right, that we have to build, say, on social media platforms. We never even had to build it in Second Life because Second Life just literally is a space. We didn't have to solve the like, how do I find that? It's like, well, you find that by walking. You know, there's there's not. Now, of course, that's not exactly true. Second Life has things like a guide and you can teleport and things like that. But for the most part, um, it's really been interesting because Second Life is kind of you know, it's built just like the real world where kind of everything else or not everything, but lots of other things on the internet have been experiments in breaking those like spatial laws, if you will, about, you know, how we find things. But Second Life is kind of retro in that sense in that it just does things uh, largely through space. The other thing is we started the company and I always wanted to be, well, I felt that Second Life would only be interesting if people did what they wanted in as unconstrained a way as possible, because that's what would create the vast, you know, intricate tapestry of things people were doing there that would be worth exploring. And, you know, if we had kind of zoned the experience or uh, behaviorally conditioned people there in some way, it would kind of make the whole magic of it collapse. That's at least what I thought as the, the founder. And so we didn't do advertising. We didn't do attention detection or mining. You know, we, we don't know who you are when you're using Second Life. We don't want to. We don't know where you're looking. Um, you know, we don't know how you're moving your body and we don't want to, because if we even, you know, detected that stuff, we would inevitably, you know, slide down the slippery slope of, ourselves or allowing other people to start, you know, manipulating your attention and behavior. And of course, that is what, in my opinion, has led us astray in the last, you know, 15 years or so where we've, we've, we've begun manipulating each other's behavior online, which we totally did not have to do. That was not, that was not part of the plan. <laughs> At least it wasn't part of the plan in the nineties, you know, and I, I, I was there for the nineties. So, uh, as an entrepreneur. So I, I think that, yeah, second life is a hopeful, example of how we can make online spaces, online public squares, if you will, to, you know, use a, you know, oft repeated, you know, recently statement. Uh, we can do that in a way that causes us to behave well toward each other. In fact, it's rather straightforward. Our bias as human beings is to treat each other collaboratively and with an anticipation of consequences and with reciprocity and trust building, all of those things we do 
uh, innately. And in fact, Second Life, when you put people right face to face as avatars in Second Life, guess what? They act just like you do in real life, which is you're not going to shout at somebody who's standing right there in front of you. That was, you know, that's pretty intense. Um, so you, you see all these good things happening. And I remain a really strong optimist around saying we've had a few bad actors and a few bad ideas in the last couple of decades. We need to get rid of them. We need to stop doing personalized advertising, in my opinion, altogether, period. It needs to become illegal. I think we're getting there in the EU toward that happening. Um, once we get there, we'll get back to a more level playing field where it just doesn't pay to say, manipulate people's behavior. And, and I think second life and other worlds as well, um, are proof that if you do that, people actually get along just fine. Yeah. It's, it's refreshing to hear it because I, I think like generally the audience or people are getting smarter to it. And it's so subtle that really, you know, obviously there's been a big AI conversation, uh, recently, but really on social media, you do, if you look at yourself, you notice how your behavior has been changed when using those platforms, because you post at different certain times of day, or you, you know, which photos are going to do well, because you know, what's in them. And so you, and you're, you know, hanging out maybe at the extremes with certain people, because, you know, all of that stuff is, is, is really sort of, uh, has, has been crafted by algorithms showing us what we should do. So I think there, there will be a big pushback to that. Um, and very short form attention content is very hot at the minute, but I know a lot of people who are very tired of it and it's, and we're understanding sort of the dopamine hits are unhealthy, but it's right. constantly, constantly, constantly to go and explore worlds, but that doesn't exist. I, I hope we see a big shift towards that. Cause I think that's probably, probably coming. People, I think want the opposite of, of what's happening now. I wanted to ask you as well about, uh, whether you subscribe to this idea of the open metaverse, which is a trendy conversation in this world of various worlds connecting. There's so much to solve there for all the different kind of standards, whether it's the sort of 3d assets that could potentially move across worlds and various other things. So we're a long way off that, but much like the internet sort of built up these universal standards that let, uh, different email providers, for example, communicate with each other. Do you subscribe to that idea that we, we, we will have a set of connected worlds or do you not see that happening? Once we get to adults, you know, once we get to the average person, you know, who's, you know, whatever the average person is worldwide, you know, who's 28 years old or whatever, when we get to that person being comfortable going to a meeting or school or a show or something like that as an avatar, which is what we're all working toward. As I said earlier, it's, it's very hard. Second life shows that it's very difficult, easy to do with kids, quite hard with, with grownups. Once we get there though, yeah, there's going to be openness that is both economically practical and therefore will, I think, tend to dominate. And then openness that will be from a kind of a more community rules perspective will be a requirement. So for example, you're gonna want to be more in control of aspects of your identity than you have been historically, right? Like if you were using Facebook to log into something and Facebook decided that they didn't like you as a, a person, um, they could disconnect you from Facebook in a way that would disconnect you from other places that you wanted to log into, right? That is a significant um, imposition of uh, power that I think we all understand we wanna kind of get away from. So I think, as an example of where we need openness, identity in the sense that I, uh, I permanently kind of uh, emit information about my own identity and everybody can 
you know, let me into their spaces or not, but it, but it is I who am kind of fundamentally in control of the basic facts of that identity. You know, that's a strong idea. And it's, I think one that's going to happen again, it hasn't happened because nobody cares yet because we're trying to interconnect, for example, like game worlds, which I always laugh about, like, interconnecting video games in their present form doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't think it makes sense to the players. I don't think it makes sense to the publishers. I, I don't think it makes sense to anyone. You know, like nobody wants to drive their car from GTA into Among Us. Like that doesn't make any sense at all from an openness or a play perspective or anything. Um, and that's why we're stuck in this weird we're in this weird in-between moment right now where because the applications that people would kind of call the metaverse are mostly like video games, you have this incompatibility. And then of course there's the bad acting where, you know, for example, uh, if somebody is capturing digital goods and digital identities into a space and then generating some money for themselves as a platform, sure. They're going to be probably standing at a risk of, losing some of their market share if they're open, you know, if, if they say, let those digital goods go into another world. So I think their identity, there will be these places where we have to collectively as a society adjudicate and then, and then design, you know, what the rules are around openness. We do see that on the web, for example, the web is a very open structure. Um, and so I think we'll eventually come back to it in metaverse, but we just don't have the reason yet we we don't have the open world where we're all going to school, for example, as was the backbone of say Ready Player One, as, you know, as a film and book. We just don't have that happening yet. So like, it's like the conversation hasn't even started. Mm. Yeah, we are in quite an interesting in between moment. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, like, having worked uh, on all these ideas in this space for so long, uh, you, you must have seen so many kind of mini hype cycles and, and like even just watching VR over the last sort of 10, 15 years. It's been so interesting because it has some moments where it thinks where we think it's going to go kind of mainstream and then it doesn't. But then also, uh, you know, like uh, Meta Quest 2, I think sold more headsets than Xbox last year. They're, they're, these moments are happening. And then obviously Apple uh, with the Vision Pro was like a huge moment that have been rumored for many years and then actually did happen. What, what would be your like advice, I guess, to people? Because if you follow just the mainstream narratives, it's kind of like being in the waves, being thrown around of like when it's hype, it's going to be amazing. When it's not, it's all over type thing. You... What I guess would be your advice to somebody who is spotting the directional trend, but you know is is maybe turned off by the kind of news? What have you learned over that time? And and uh, you know now is a good time to be kind of building and still involved and stick around. I would I would guess. Well, let me answer that by proposing a test. It's almost like the Turing test, right? I'll give you my own virtual worlds test. So the question is, how would we know that a virtual world was ready to be? a place for all of us to come and start doing things, right? That we're sort of, I think, vaguely dreaming about when we use the word metaverse. The litmus test, curiously, is the following, right? And this could be done on a screen-based thing like Second Life, but it could also be done um, with with something that you, where you were wearing a meta a quest, for example. The, the litmus test is this. Your significant other should be able to put the headset on right or or you know move in front of their camera or whatever um and essentially animate an avatar that you've never seen before you know an, an avatar that's some different you know creature or person or whatever but if your significant other puts the equipment on or sits down in front of the screen or puts the headset on 
you and and you see that person as that avatar and they're not speaking there's no sound so you can't identify them by their voice you should instantly within a second or two be able to say that's them it's that sounds like a weird test but it, it's a really important one because what happens with virtual worlds is that we want to believe that the person across the table is is who we kind of want them to be right but when that's thoroughly tested what we discover is and and i think this is at the core of what i said earlier which is people are just uncomfortable so far as being avatars is that the avatar non-verbally has to communicate with you in a way that clearly gives you the information you need. And an example of that, a litmus test example of that is that that's the nonverbal information is what enables you to instantly out of the corner of your eye even know that it's a very good friend of yours or it's your significant other or something like that, or it's your parents, whatever, just from the way they move. And at, although it sounds a bit, you know, maybe it's a bit mystical, what I'm saying is once that nonverbal information is conveyed clearly, I think we're all going to say, Hey, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm willing to spend some time in there. So I think there's a kind of magic that will happen at that point. And so I would challenge myself and of course, others that are working in this ecosystem in the, in this virtual world space to pass that test as quickly as we can. Once we get to there, then we can start really building and, you know, getting into some of these fights over what the regulation ought to be, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I've talking talking <laughs> spoken to quite a few people about motion capture, motion capture data, and it's amazing how you can kind of recognize someone based on just their kind of movements and and that familiarity without them saying stuff is is interesting. So yeah, when it gets to that level, it's uh, probably so intuitive. I would guess as a human that it becomes uh, something really easy to like navigate. I should also say, I think we'll get there. Mm. I think we'll get there. But I am a hard science, you know, hard tech person. Like that's been my life. I've been working on things that were on the cutting edge of what we can do with technology. And I would say I've been humbled by the last 20 years, by how hard it is. You know, I built Second Life and then with uh, two co-founders, I started a new company called High Fidelity. And we spent another 10 years building a ground up, very powerful virtual world designed explicitly for VR headsets like the Quest. And I have been humbled and sobered by what a difficult problem that test I just described getting to that is. It is a really hard problem, but I do, I should say, I do think we'll get there. It's just that some of the solutions are still in the realm of basic science in the way that, you know, making the keyboard work on the iPhone was something that was still a basic science problem, right? Nobody had done a keyboard on a glass screen that you could type on at a reasonable speed until Apple really ground on the problem. And I think this is kind of like that, that we're not going to get to something that's the, the iPhone moment, if you will, for the metaverse until you can put on, say, the Apple Vision Pro and look at somebody else as an avatar and instantly know who that person is and be comfortable talking to them. So, and I think we'll get there. But I bet you that even the Vision Pro, which I myself, I must say, have not yet used, uh, but I certainly, some of my colleagues, you know, have worked on the, the thing. Um, I think that it's not there yet. And that's where we need to get to. And even at $4,000 or whatever, it's it's not there yet. Mm. Yeah, that moment is surely approaching. But uh, yeah, interesting. That's a 
very well said for sure. I've got two more questions for you. It's been really awesome chat, so thank you so much. Um, there's a lot of people listening, a lot of uh, uh, you know people who are execs at businesses and companies and, and are looking at this um, as uh, you know an opportunity and a little bit kind of confused when and where to move. What would you say maybe the opportunities or the biggest opportunities are that you see for this future that's coming and how to position yourself? That obviously depends on what you do, but is there any broad advice you have of how you should be kind of looking at the future of immersive technologies in these spaces? Well, one way to answer that is to say where I think the killer apps will first actually uh, emerge. And the place that I think is probably the right one to look for first is school. I th and, and the reason that I say that is it's certainly feasible to make these devices inexpensive enough that they can be thought of as comparable to say the cost of a fancy science book or something like that. Like it, it's, it's whether we do this through social programs as government or through individual initiative or whatever, I think that the accessibility of like a VR device, for example, as a means of gaining access to education is at least it's feasible. It's reasonable. I think we could get a lot of those on people. I also think that this difficulty with recognizing nonverbal information, it, I think the first place that it'll be like good enough for everybody to say, I'm going to use this is class because class is a kind of place where, you know, you're willing to put up with some bugs and could, because you're trying to get an education and you already know some of the people it's kind of an in-between space that I think fits really well. It's got technical challenges like to, to go to a freshman classroom, which for various reasons I think is likely to be still a pattern for a long time and have a couple hundred other students, you know, participating with a teacher at the same time that technologically gets into even other stuff than what we're talking about with communication, you know, like just scale and security. And, you know, there's the stuff that you, you have to do right to make that work. But I would say, try to make school work. I also think education has a positive opportunity for us all right now, you know, like better educating ourselves collectively is a mission for society that's very positive and uplifting. And so I would, I would say, I think that'll break out first. I think like going to a music concert, that's harder. That, that just has to feel so good. That's got to feel so great. And, and I think it's trickier. You need more people in a space at one time, you know, the roar of the crowd, these, these sorts of experiences. So I think entertainment experiences with VR are a little harder. I think gaming experiences obviously are kind of working already. I don't know that that's going to like change a whole lot. Um, so I, I would focus probably on, on education as a use case where if I was an entrepreneur, I'd be trying to like get something working. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely uh, very smart because also the, whether it's school or college or whatever, people are really up for disruption there because the traditional way of learning has, has been quite similar for quite a long time. So to add a layer of like immersion or something, it's like people are really up for that and it, it'd be very different and cool with it. It wouldn't take much persuasion, I would guess, to get people kind of involved in that way, which is cool. Um, all right, so yeah, last question really is, is what's kind of getting you most excited at the moment uh, for Second Life and then also the kind of work you're doing outside of Second Life? Because I know you're working on many things um, and maybe generally for the future of sort of added three questions in one sorry yeah yeah well let me pick two areas of interest that maybe people would find interesting 
Um, one is digital currency. Um, I've got this new lab that I've started with a few friends. It's very unusual, which is how I like to do things. We're trying to create a community lab environment that is not itself incorporated. You know, we're trying to create something that's not like an incubator or something like that, but instead is a collegial group of people that are working together on some, on multiple projects with different uh, directions. And so, um, uh, we're doing this in San Francisco. It's a, the website is IRL 415 and it's a, it's a lab where we're gathering people to work on projects, but a couple of notable projects and areas of focus out of that. One is digital currency. Um, it's a whole longer conversation and I've, I've done some talking about it already and I'm, I'm about to do a bunch more. Um, there's a way of doing a digital currency. That's not the way crypto works. It's different but is, I think, something that represents what at least some of us kind of wanted out of crypto, which is something that is more fair than normal money and provides a means for people to actually buy and sell things from each other, like we touched on earlier. So I'm working on a project called Fairshare that is in a prototype phase right now, but it's something you can read more about that has come out of that lab. And I'm very concerned and excited about the opportunity to um, find new ways to use digital money to reduce inequality. Um, I, I believe that wealth inequality, certainly in the United States and, and, and globally as well, is one of the great existential, uh, is a really important existential threat that if we don't fix inequality, we sort of can't fix a lot of other things. Like I think fixing climate change is way harder if you have profound wealth inequality because you just can't share the actions needed to, to be taken very well if you've got this tremendous disparity in wealth. So that's one thing, uh, digital currency for reducing wealth inequality. So that's one of the projects. As an area of focus, of course, we should end on AI. And, you know, we've all only had really about a year at most now to ponder this very radical idea that uh, computers are finally fast enough to do some very interesting things that are comparable to the things we do when we think. And so the implications of that for virtual worlds are really broad. There's obviously tremendous risk of harm. Um, if we, for example, start falling in love with and hanging out with and getting our advice from NPCs that are animated by AI. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? This obviously sounds, you know, straight up like a Black Mirror episode. It's already happening though, but in, uh, with Replica and other places. Yeah, that's, yeah, crazy. Yeah, right, right. I mean, so we have to consider with great care as a species how we want that to work and how, you know, what's the right and compassionate and uh, inclusive and, you know, upward you know, moving way for us to interact like that. And I think there's tremendous danger. I don't, I worry, I don't, it's hard to imagine, I think we'll do it, but it's hard to imagine at present how we get around, how we not cause harm to each other using AI and, and using them in virtual worlds is a particular hotspot. Although of course there's going to be lots of other ways to use them that could cause harm. So I think AI can do that on the other hand. And, and by the way, replicas is, is a good example of this. I mean, Imagine if you created an AI who wholeheartedly, uh, you know, in, in terms of both the company structure and the revenue structure and everything else, where the 
the goal of that AI was to make you into a better, more trusting, more tolerant, more connected person, right? It is possible. It is very possible to build an AI that, for example, coaches you on how to communicate better with other human beings. It is possible to do that. And we should do it. Will we do that uh, as opposed to doing some other terrible thing with AI in, in virtual worlds? Um, I don't know, but I want to put a lot of my own personal time and hopefully inspire others to uh, focus on the positive outcomes that are possible here and go after them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Philip, thank you so much. I knew that was going to be a good episode and uh, absolutely was. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, where can we send people to, uh, to kind of follow you and all the awesome work you're doing? Well, uh, IRL415, as I mentioned before, is the website that points to our lab and you can reach out to us there and stop by or uh, get to know us. And then let's see, on uh, Twitter, I'm at uh, Philip Rosedale and I write a good bit on there. You can find me on Medium and Substack as well. Awesome. All right. I'll link it all in the show notes. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was great.